This recording is a production of Mennonite School Services, a ministry of Faith Builders Educational Programs. More recordings are available on our website, www.christianlearning.org. This session was recorded at our teachers' conference on October 14 to 16, 2011, in Guy's Mills, Pennsylvania. Good morning. Some of you came and asked me last night what I would recommend for children uh, for your schools. How many are familiar with this little book? It's been around a long time. Uh, the schools where I taught, this is what we used for the elementary. And uh, they have a couple of them down in the bookstore, and you can uh, get the address if uh, you want to and send for them directly. David Bursault's new book just came to David Bursault's residence uh, on Friday, yes, uh, Thursday. In God We Don't Trust. I highly recommend every Christian teacher to read this book. This is a Christian critique of the American Revolution. And it's all the opposite of what you have been taught if you went to public school. Uh, very well researched. Uh, many, many uh, primary quotes in the book uh, to back up what he has to say. And uh, I would strongly suggest that you get this. I, I'm sorry that I didn't think quickly enough to have David send a couple cases along, so I don't have any here to sell. But I'm going to lay it here on the table, and you can take a look at it. And uh, the address is here. The website is here in the, uh, on the back of the title page. Phone number, and you can order them if you want to. All right, this morning, in, in these talks, I've been trying to think, what is it that we can do in our schools that will help us to uh, <clears throat> be a gospel-centered church and strengthen our churches. And so I, I'm going to speak about a subject this morning that I guess I'm known far and wide for speaking on, and uh, maybe this will be old hat to you, I don't know. But <clears throat> I'd like to speak to you about something that was lost very early in the church and has never really been recovered. It's been recovered by little groups here and there for short periods of time. It was recovered by our Anabaptists at the very beginning, but it somehow got lost uh, somewhere along the line, even with us. And in the last 100 years, it really got lost, and you'll see that as we go along. Uh, <clears throat> now, what I'd like to speak about is a kingdom of God perspective. That's what I'd like to speak about. And I'd like to sing before we start that old church hymnal song, we bless thy name, O Lord, thy goodness we record, thine is the kingdom. How many know it? Ah, good, we can sing it from memory. No, <laughs> so we bless thy name, O Lord. Jesus began his ministry with a nine-word statement. Does anybody know what it was? Repent, for you will go to hell. Is that what he said? But isn't that the message that usually follows that word? Is that what you usually have heard? That is not what Jesus said. In fact, that was not his first concern. And it still is not God's first concern. Your personal destiny. Now, it's a great concern of his, but it's not his first concern. His first concern is his kingdom. Repent, for you finally have the opportunity to enter this kingdom that the prophets talked about all through the Old Testament. And when he said that, his Jewish audience were thinking of those idealistic passages in all the prophets that point to a day when there will be a society that will finally represent all of the excellencies of what God had in mind for the human race. That's what they thought. That's what immediately entered their minds. And that's, I really believe, was what was in the mind of Christ. You folks finally have the opportunity to participate in this promise that has been made all through the history of Israel. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is right at your fingertips. Six verses later, after calling his first four disciples, it says he went throughout all the cities of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and it tells what the content of his message was, preaching the kingdom of God and healing all manner of diseases. The Sermon on the Mount begins, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And he taught us to pray just as we prayed, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. 
in earth as it is in heaven. And speaking of the end of time, he says, the gospel of this kingdom shall be preached to all the world for a witness unto all nations. All nations will have a chance to get saved. All no, all, yes, they will. But all nations will have a chance to get a glimpse of this kingdom that God has made it possible for men to experience. They'll all have a chance to, to at least get a glimpse of that before the end. And then shall the end come. Now, the Lord's Prayer reflects a kingdom concept. If you notice, all of the pronouns in the Lord's Prayer are plural pronouns. There's not a singular pronoun in the whole Lord's Prayer. It's our Father, give us, forgive us, our debtors, lead us not, deliver us. It's, it's collective. The whole thing is. And the whole prayer is sandwiched between these two statements. Thy kingdom come, and thine is the kingdom. The whole prayer is sandwiched between those two, two terms. The kingdom is the center of Christ's purpose and his prayer. And to all that he did and said. Most of the parables are kingdom parables. A tre- kingdom is like a treasure hid in the field. The, cre- the kingdom is as a merchant man. The kingdom is as a net. The kingdom is as this and the kingdom is as that. I want you to turn to an interesting verse in Matthew chapter 13. As we... You, you might wonder why we're, we're having this message. I hope it becomes clear as we go along what the central theme of the gospel should be or what God intended for it to be. <clears throat> now, if I were to ask you, in Jesus' parable of the sower, what the seed is, before you look at the verse, somebody tell me what your concept of the seed that is to be sown through all the world. Word of God, that's what I would have said. I want you to look, and, and that is true. And in fact, uh, as this parable is given, I think in Luke, it, it actually says that. The seed is, the, is, I think, the word of God. But look what it says here in verse 38. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. What the world needs to have planted is kingdom Christians everywhere That in their relations, whether it's two or three of them, or whether it's a whole congregation of people, whether it's a larger community, the world can get a glimpse of the beauty and the glory and the justice and the benevolence of the kind of society God had in mind when he he created man. In fact, Guy Hirschberg used to call this, and I like this term, he used to call it the society of the redeemed. So that the world can see what the whole world would look like if everybody would obey the king. That is the passion of God's heart. But the sad part is, we don't get very far in church history till we come to the church creeds. Would somebody tell us what is the first word of the the historic creeds of the church, every one of them? I. I. There's not a plural pronoun in any of them. And there is no mention of the kingdom. It's all about what I believe, what God wants me to understand. That's what the historic creeds are. I think the Creed of Constantinople has one little statement at the end. It says, and he shall come again to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end in the future. No concept of the present kingdom. I told you when I introduced this theme that this was lost very early in the church and has never really been regained, uh, in a wholesale way at least. <clears throat> the result is a difference in our whole outlook on life. And to me, it has gotten worse and worse and worse as the years have gone by. In the last century, with the revivalistic emphasis, and I don't want it today to downplay that, there was a lot of good done by the revivalistic emphasis, but revivalistic Preaching is save me preaching. And so the whole Mennonite church, what little bit of kingdom focus we had, shifted to a save me religion. And now we have church 
hearts are so poor, they, at the first little disagreement, they're out the door. Some of them are still wandering around, are not connected with any church, don't see the importance of belonging to a church, are burnt out, have given up on the church. And they feel they can do that because nobody has told them that the whole point of the gospel is the kingdom. You can't do that. It's like saying, I'm going to play professional baseball, but I will never join a team. Well, you won't play professional baseball either. Because that's the nature of the game. And you won't really be a Christian. I'm not saying what God will do with your destiny. I can't say that. But you can't really be a Christian in the sense that God wants you to be by yourself because the whole point is the kingdom of God. Your salvation is a means to an end. God can't build this kingdom except he redeems people and it gets their lives straightened out. This kingdom can't work any other way. So your salvation is a very important thing, but it's a means to an end. It is not an end in itself. And I have listened all my life to preaching that said, your your salvation and whether you get to heaven when you die is the whole point of the gospel. That's basically what I heard. How many think you heard the same thing pretty much through your whole life? I'd like to dispel that today. And I'd like to say that God's first priority is the kingdom of God. And he wants to bring people together into communities in in a stronger commitment than probably any of us have ever experienced in our churches to have a group of people so committed that they work out their differences, they work out their problems, and they seriously seek God with all their hearts and demonstrate to the whole world the beauty of those relationships between husbands and wives, parents and children, and all the community working together. That's God's heart. And you know by reading church history, you have little flashes of it with the Moravians. You have little flashes of it with the early Anabaptists. Here and there you've got little glimpses of what that could be. But the church as a whole abandoned this whole concept very early in its history. And I'd like to bring it back. (laughs) I'd like for you people to teach in your schools in a way that your children build a real concept of the absolute necessity and the beautiful ideals and the practical outworking of community and kingdom and put a priority on relationships that are committed relationships that don't give up at the first hint of sorrow and disagreement. All right. The individual was intended to find himself lost in a corporate whole. That was God's purpose from the beginning. Now, what has the church done with this? Well, the word kingdom is there, and they can't ignore it. But what most of the church has done has relegated it to the future. They've relegated it to the future. Now, I'm not really here today to discuss whether uh, the millennium is going to happen or what's going to happen. I really don't care how that all works out. But I am going to take issue with anybody who teaches a concept that the kingdom is future and it's, we're all waiting for it to come. Now you can be an amillennialist, a premillennialist, a panmillennialist, or whatever you want to be, but I want you to say that when Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it was intended to be something that begins now. If you want to say it's going to have a greater fulfillment in the future, which it surely is, that's fine, and that's what I believe. But for all intents and purposes, that kingdom must begin now. If we are to fulfill what Jesus wanted us to fulfill. All right, so that's one thing the church has done to it. They've re- relegated it to the future. And I, I think the devil has made hay with the premillennialist idea. I mean, I know premillennialists who love the church, but they will never call it the kingdom of God. They think that, that that's a term that belongs to the future. I don't like that. That's not what Jesus taught. That's not what Paul taught, as we're going to see. Right? <clears throat> the other thing people have done with it, we've had people like Augustine and John Calvin who really believed that the kingdom was the center of the gospel. In fact, that was the difference between Luther and Calvin. Luther basically went off with an individualistic salvation. But Calvin said, no, the central theme of the Bible is the kingdom of God. And that's what Augustine said. But they added something to it. The use of force. Union of church and state. And they horribly perverted what God intended. Now why, I I wanted to say this yet, 124 references to the kingdom of God in the New Testament. 
I'm sorry, just in the Gospels. Now, why did Jesus focus his message on the kingdom of God? Well, it was because that was God's original purpose. Turn to Genesis 1.26. We're just going to do a little Bible survey here. And I want to so impress you today that if anybody ever asks you what is, the, what is the message of the gospel that you will not give the answer so people get saved and go to heaven? I believe that. That's part of the gospel. But that doesn't get to the heart of what God wants to accomplish. And I, I, want, and I want you to be able to give a clear answer to your students. All right, it says in verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let him have dominion. Let them, by the way. I'm sorry, I missed the pronoun. You see, it's plural. It's not singular. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over fowl of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And that was the original command that the Lord gave. Now that word dominion is the same word that is used of the Messiah later in Psalms. Psalm 110.2, it's the very same Hebrew word. It means rule. Okay? Let's turn to Exodus 19.6. This is the first usage of the word kingdom in this sense in the whole Bible. Exodus 19.6, and it's a very instructive verse. It says... Verse 5, I'm sorry, verse 6. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So that was his purpose for Israel. That they would be a kingdom, but notice, a kingdom unto me. It wasn't their kingdom. It was not a humanistic kingdom where men rule in their own right but a kingdom unto me. A kingdom that would demonstrate God's character and all of God's intention. A mediatorial kingdom, if you please. A kingdom that bridged from God to human society and showed to human society His benevolent rule, His forgiveness, His power of sacrificial love. People would see perfect justice in this kingdom. They would see mercy in this kingdom. They would see freedom. All freedom is built upon this principle. Your Anabaptist forefathers are the true progenitors of the freedoms of Western civilization. They were the first people in modern history to say that the church and state should be separate. Men should have freedom of conscience. They should join churches of their own free will. They should not be coerced. Nobody was saying that in the 1500s, except your forefathers. The Lutherans weren't saying it. The the Reformed weren't saying it. Nobody was saying that. Our forefathers gave the first announcement of the foundation of true freedom, which we are enjoying today. And that's what this was to be. It was to be a demonstration of the beauty of what the whole world would look like if everybody obeyed the king. All right? It was not to be an absolute kingdom like people tried to make it. It was a kingdom unto God, limited rule of man, absolute rule of God through men, all right? The ideal was David, the shepherd king, who truly cared for his people. And it's interesting to me, as you go down through history, you find these leaders here and there who who have true shepherd hearts, and they, they, they really are at the top of the pages of history. People like Abraham Lincoln, I mean, they are honored because everybody senses that this is true authority. This is true kingship. At least it's approximating it. It's getting closer than, than many people have gotten. But the devil has perverted it. And people shy away from, from this whole concept because when people think of kingdom and they think of rule and they think of all of that, they think of, of people like Hitler and Stalin and Mao Zedong and Pol Pot. And, and those people <clears throat> all have done wrong, of course. But God never abandoned his original purpose. And the kingdom of God is the theme of the entire revelation. And as I said before, the salvation of man is a means to that end. The Bible says, seek ye first. And we have a generation of people who are seeking first their own destiny. But God says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and then everything else will take care of itself. 
In fact, the Bible says, whosoever shall save his life shall... Charles Finney, in his book, Lectures to Professing Christians, it's been a long time since I read the book, and I can't locate this statement in the book, but I'm, I'm sure that it's there because that's where I first read it. This is what he said. He said, anybody whose primary purpose is to escape hell shall surely go there. And he quoted this verse. He that shall save his life shall lose it. But he that shall lose his life for my sake and the gospel, and I would add kingdom there, then he'll find it. And I see that today. In fact, I listened to some tapes. My mother had me transcribe some tapes years ago of a two-week series of revival meetings at Chambersburg Mennonite Church where I grew up. And the evangelist who had those meetings listed at the beginning of every meeting in the evening all of the people who had responded to the altar call the night before. And I knew every one of them. And every one of them has lost out spiritually. That was shocking to me. And I said to myself, well, what was that whole two weeks of revival worth? I hope some people got blessed and revived and all that. But as far as the the so-called conversions that took place, they all were lost. And I think it has a lot to do with the fact that we did not plug these people into a kingdom concept and teach them to lose their lives and give up themselves and work for the greater whole and manifestation of the kingdom of God. We taught them to save themselves and just what the Bible says, they lost it. All right, let's look through the Old Testament. What does God say to Abraham? Chapter 12. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. It tells him to get himself out of his country. And then it says in verse 2, And I will make thee a great nation. And I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That's the promise. Genesis 22. That he was going to make Abraham a great nation that would bless the whole earth. All right? Only if they followed him. Because if you don't follow God, you end up with a nation like Hitler had, and like Mao Zedong had, like Stalin had. That's what you end up with. You end up with an oppressive nation that wants to conquer for its own glory. But if it follows God, God said, I'm going to use your nation to bless the whole world. Now, of course, the Messiah came from him, but I think there was more involved here. Let's turn to look at chapter 22 of Genesis, verses 15 to 16. And it reads this way. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, in that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore. And thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. Whose enemies? God's enemies. And they'll take over and they will bless rather than these oppressive nations that they conquer. It says, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou hast obeyed my voice. That was God's heart to Abraham. Well, let's turn to Deuteronomy. Let's see what he says to this nation that came out of Abraham. Tremendous promises made here. Deuteronomy 2, verse 25 This day will I begin to put the dread of thee and the fear of thee upon the nations that are under the whole heaven, who shall hear report of thee and shall tremble and be in anguish because of thee. The rule of God in this nation and the absolute authority and justice of his rule would be something that the nations would say, this is something we don't want to mess with. Chapter 4. Chapter 4. Verses 6 and 7. Moses is exhorting Israel to obey God. And it says in verse 6, Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations. See, that's what God wants. He wants the nations to see what this looks like. This is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the nations which shall hear all these statutes. And they, what do they say? Surely this is a great nation. This 
great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what nation is there so great? Who hath God so nigh unto them? As the Lord our God is in all things that we call upon him for. And what nation is so great that hath statutes and judgments so righteous or just, if you please, as all this law which I set before you this day? You see, the world misunderstands God. When they think of God, they think of of someone who's looking over the balustrades of heaven saying, are you people having a good time? Well, whatever you're doing, you're doing wrong because you're supposed to be sober and you're supposed to be real strict and and your lives are supposed to be constricted within my laws and you people are just supposed to be burdened by, by my character. That's what the world thinks about when they think about God. They don't think about freedom. They don't think about mercy. They don't think about justice. They don't think about all those beautiful things that God would love to do with people if they'd only bow their knee to the king. And we're here to show them. But we can't show them by ourselves. All of the graces of Christianity are in relationships. If you love without some other person, who are you going to love? Yourself. (laughs) It all has to do. It all has to do with how people relate to each other. That's how they see all the graces of God's character. And we're supposed to demonstrate God's glory. And glory is just simply a manifestation of excellence. We are here to show the whole world who God truly is. And it's certainly not going to be with the kind of church experiences that a lot of us have observed. The world is looking on and they're seeing a horrible picture of God. All right? This is to be a called out nation. It cannot be a mixture. It cannot have some of that kingdom mixed in with it. It's going to have, if you notice in some of these promises, he says, if you observe to do all that I commanded you. God can't do the job unless he has totally surrendered people. It's a little bit like a surgeon who uh, uh, is going to do a kidney operation. And suppose the person who's going to get up on the operating table says, now, doctor, before I get on the operating table, I'd like to have an understanding with you. I do not want a general anesthetic because... I want to have some part in deciding how this operation is going to be done. And so I want you to give me a local anesthetic, and every time you cut, you and I are going to discuss how that cut's going to be done. You'd never get off the operating table. And that's why God can't do anything unless he can do everything, individually and collectively. It's all or nothing. And that's why we have the trouble we have. Because it's not all or nothing in so many lives. Turn to chapter 7. I'm just so excited to see what God can do if he really is permitted to have a people whose focus is on the kingdom. But we're going to have to get the focus there. As long as the focus is not on the kingdom, then people can individualistically think and do what they want to do because we have not told them that the whole point of this is the kingdom. Your salvation by itself is meaningless. It has to be kingdom. That's God's purpose. 724. And he shall deliver their kings into thine hand, and thou shalt destroy their name from under heaven. There shall be no man able to stand before thee until thou hast destroyed them. 15. Verses 4 and 6. 4 through 6. He's talking about the year of release. He says, there shall be no poor among you when, when, when God actually has his way in your kingdom. For the Lord shall greatly bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it. Let's turn to chapter 26. <clears throat> I don't know if you feel the tragedy of the fact that this nation missed its calling. It never really experienced this. Somewhat under David, somewhat under Solomon, but basically this was a lost vision. Chapter 26, verses 17 to 19, reads this way. Thou hast avouched the Lord this day to be thy God and to walk in his ways and to keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments and to hearken unto his voice. And the Lord hath avouched thee this day to be his peculiar people, as he hath promised thee, that thou shouldest keep all his commandments and to make thee high above all nation which he hath made in praise and in name and in honor. 
that thou mayest be a holy people unto the Lord thy God as he has spoken. And he said, if you do that, I will put you up here as a spectacle, a beautiful, irresistible, attractive spectacle for all the nations to observe. 28, verses 12 and 14. Reads this way. The Lord shall open unto thee his good treasure, the heaven to give thee rain unto thy land in his season to bless all the work of thine hand, and thou shalt lend unto many nations, and thou shalt not borrow. And the Lord shall make thee the head and not the tail, and thou shalt be above only, and thou shalt not be beneath, if that thou hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God. And we can go through, continue to go through the Old Testament and we can find verses like that in the prophets the whole way to the end of the Old Testament. All right, so that's the Old Testament. <clears throat> and the children of Israel <clears throat> basically never really did this the way that it could have been done. And we say, well, that's, that's sad. Well, let's come into the New Testament. <clears throat> let's turn to Matthew chapter 3. Jesus came and said, The kingdom of heaven is at hand, but before he came, there was John the Baptist. What was his message? What I want to do here in the New Testament now is I want to look at what's the gospel message? What are the men preaching the whole way through the gospel or the New Testament? Beginning with John the Baptist, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1, verse 1 and 2. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, of course, we already saw that that's what Jesus preached. Look at the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And you go down through, and several of them have that phrase in it. At the end of chapter 6, it says, Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven. Look at Luke chapter 12. Excuse me. Luke chapter 12. 32, he's telling people to give away their their unnecessary accumulation. And he says in verse 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now or in the future? See, I told you, I have problems with these people who place this in the future. He says it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell that you have, give, and and then he gives his... uh, his uh, command there. <clears throat> it's God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. <clears throat> and economics, of course, has a lot to do with it, which is not our subject this morning, and I think it's been a lot of our problem. We hoard our little corner, and our, our money is a big part of our individualism. Because if you have money, you don't need anybody else. If you have enough money, you can do everything you need to do by yourself. And it's only when we make ourselves vulnerable and dependent that God can really do what he wants to do with us, but that's another subject. All right. Most of the parables are about the kingdom, as I said. Let's turn to uh, Matthew 25. Verse 24. I'm sorry, verse 14, sorry, it's verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. And so he's talking the whole way through here about the kingdom of heaven. All right, well, what did Paul preach? We just assumed that Paul went and preached the gospel that we basically have heard preached sort of the way we preach it. Well, what did he preach? Let's see what he preached. Let's turn to Acts chapter 19. Verse 8. And Paul went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. That was his message. I'm tempted to ask you if in all your life you have ever heard a sermon centered on this theme. 
I didn't. In all my growing up years, I never heard a sermon on the kingdom of God. All the preaching I heard in all my growing up years was what I call save me preaching. Every bit of it. I think that's a tragedy. Because this is what this man preached for three months. The things concerning the kingdom of God. Let's turn to chapter 20. Verse 25. He's taking his leave of the Ephesian elders, and this is what he says. And now behold, I know that ye all, among whom I have gone preaching, the kingdom of God shall see my face no more. So that was his message. Everywhere he went. All right, let's turn to chapter 28. We're coming now to the end of Paul's life. What's he preaching at the end? When he gets to Rome, he invites the Jews to come and have an interview with him, or rather they appointed a time for him to have an interview with them. And they all come together, and in verse 23 we have his, what he preached, or what he discussed with them. And when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him into his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them, uh, persuading them concerning Jesus both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning till evening. And I think the persuasion was that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the king, and here's the kingdom. And that was his message. What was he preaching at the very end? Well, let's go to the end of the book. Verse 30. And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. Isn't that interesting? I mean, everywhere you go where you hear the content of the message, it's this content. And I, my, my prayer is that somehow you school teachers, especially those in the upper grades, but even in the lower grades, will instill a concept that God wants a people a corporate expression of his character in community. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Let's see what the Bible has to say about what God has provided for all of this. Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 18. Paul is praying here that the eyes of their understanding would be opened. And what's he want them to understand? You see, you can be a Christian and not see everything God wants you to see. And Paul's praying, I want your eyes to get open. I want you to see what God sees. All right, look what he sees. It says, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of not your calling, but his calling, God's calling, and what the riches of the glory of God's inheritance. See, we're always talking about our inheritance, but this says, I would want you to see God's inheritance. (laughs) All right? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe? There again, it's plural. According to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet. Why? What is it Paul wanted them to see about that? Look what it says. And gave him to be the head over all things to the church. And what is the church? It is his body, the fullness of the person who fills everything. Is that how people see the church? He says the church is his body. You know, people walk around and say, Jesus dwells in my heart. Yeah, and that's true. But if... You want to know where the full Godhead dwells. It's not in you. It's in the collective body. We are the temple of God. Plural. Far too many people think they can appropriate everything God has by themselves. The greatest expression of God will be a group of people who can appropriate what we're describing here. Okay? Let's continue. Three, verses 8 to 20. (laughs) 
Unto me who am the less, less than the least of all saints is this great given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. Paul is still plugging away here. <laughs> the mystery is God's <clears throat> act in history whereby he brought Jew and Gentile and every other uh, conceivable thing that separated people. He broke down all those barriers, barriers so he could create this church, this kingdom, if you please. This corporate expression of himself. He has abolished every hindrance to that. Why? He wants all men to see what that fellowship is all about. <clears throat> Which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Christ Jesus, to the intent now that unto the principalities and powers in the heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. Not only are the nations looking on, but the, but the angels are looking on. And I often have to wonder what they see. They're supposed to see this incredible body where all the barriers are down and here is finally a body. Here is a nation that expresses what has been God's heart from the very beginning. That's what they're to be seeing when they look at the church. In fact, the word church is this word. What's it mean? What's it mean? Yeah. Called out for what? To govern. Yes. In fact, I want to show you where the word is used in a very interesting way. Turn to Acts 19. This is where they had the ride at Ephesus, and the town clerk shows up. And he says in verse 39... But if ye inquire anything concerning other matters, it shall be determined in a lawful ecclesia. If you went to a Greek city and you said, take me to the ecclesia, they would have taken you to the ruling body of the city. So yes, somebody gave this. It means called out to govern. This part is always given. This part is never given that I've ever heard. It's like you talking to someone from the... Uh, Congress of the United States after one of their sessions, and you say, well, what happened in Congress today? Oh, we just had such a wonderful fellowship. We just enjoyed each other. We had a fellowship meal. <laughs> and we were just so encouraged at the end of the meeting. You say, well, that's not why you were there. I mean, that's nice that you enjoyed each other, but that's not what Congress is about. God intends for the church to get something done. For it to make decisions about practical issues and work out things so that this thing works harmoniously and all of the gifts are used and God's glory is displayed in all those relationships. And it's a job that we have to keep working at. But the church keeps, they're a governing body. They govern themselves and they project to the world the rule of God and what it looks like and bring a moral persuasion on the consciences of the people around them by the way they're living. All of that should be happening with the church. Where are we here? <clears throat> the next thing I want to talk a little bit about is <clears throat> man was made for this. He was made to have dominion. Jesus said, ye are the salt of the earth. You were made for influence. Now we say to a person who has ambitions to have influence, he's an ambitious person and we don't like that very well. But that is innate to every one of us. We all want to be significant and make a difference and have an influence in our world, and there's nothing wrong with that. Except the devil has perverted it. It's a little bit like love. Love is a creation of God. It's wonderful in every, every dimension of it. But the devil puts that twist in it. It's called self. And then it becomes lust. And that's what the dominion instinct becomes when the devil puts his twist into it. It becomes a lust for power. But the whole world yearns to have some kind of participation in a kingdom. And so we have the American Revolution in 1776. We have the French Revolution in 1789. We have the Latin American Revolution in the 1800s. And we have the African Revolutions in my lifetime in the 1900s. All of them testimony to the fact that people generally do not want to be dominated by some selfish person. They want to participate in government. 
There's a profound instinct placed in every person to fulfill every part of God's purpose. And when we start preaching kingdom to people, they resonate because they were created for this very thing. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men is what God wants to show to the whole world. And he showed it, of course, through Christ. The yearning of our world is for this very thing. A phenomenon of the 20th century was Marxism. What was the mantra of Marxism? Can somebody just say it real quickly? From each according to his... From each according to his ability to each according to his needs. Now, where in the world did that come from? Marxism is a Christian heresy. It comes straight out of the gospel. But the Marxists showed us something. They showed us that one-third of the world were ready to buy into that. One-third of the world wanted that from each according to his means and to each according to his needs. That was something the world wanted. Now, they, they didn't deliver on the promise, and people didn't get what they bargained for. But they showed us that the world... What do you think would have happened if the church had done that? If the church had said, to each according to his, from each according to his means and to each according to his needs, and we'd have had communities established all over the world that look like a group of people who don't have any selfish accumulation or any selfish corner on this whole thing. They're all sharing and sharing alike. And everybody who comes into this experience perfect justice, all of his needs met. Every person contributes and every person receives and it works the way it's supposed to. What do you think the world would have done to the Christian church if the church had made the promise and had delivered on it? What do you think would have happened in the world if the church had never surrendered its non-resistance, which was the master stroke of the devil? All of the horrors under the name of Christ occurred because of that. The Spanish Inquisition, the Crusades, the subjugation of the American Indian, American slavery, the conquistadors, all of that stuff done in the name of Jesus because the church took up the sword. And the devil is determined that there will not be a kingdom of peace There will not be a kingdom of equity. There will not be a kingdom of justice. This will never happen. And the church has allowed him to do it. And that's the passion of my heart. I want to see more people who say, wait a minute. We want to return to a kingdom gospel. We do not want to continue to pursue this save me gospel that goes no further than that. Now, the save me part of it is true. I don't want anybody to go away here saying that that's not part of it. That is part of the gospel. But it's only the means. It's a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. The power of that witness can be seen by our Anabaptist forefathers. They won all the freedoms that we're enjoying without lifting a sword. Wesley did it in England. In 1987... The Marxists celebrated their 70th anniversary of Marxism. And they marched their weapons and their tanks and all their stuff down through the streets of Moscow to celebrate the 70th year of Marxism. In 1988, Marxism was dead. But in 1988, the Christian church, which wasn't in very good shape, I will admit, but it was the Christian church, what was left of it at least, in Russia celebrated its 1,000th anniversary. Oh, where are kings and empires now of all that went and came? But Lord, thy church is praying yet a 1,000 years the same. Now, I'm trying to tell you, though, that we need to be singing the song, Rise Up, O Men of God. Rise up and make her great. We have not yet begun to see the potential of the kingdom of God because we have not seen it as absolutely indispensable to the gospel message and something we all must come to terms with and we must repent of our individualism and all of that has, be, that has become to run, run rampant in our time. I mean, I, this thing has ramped up tremendously just in my own lifetime. I never have seen such crass individualism as I'm seeing throughout our Anabaptist circles and people who don't seem to care about the church and who give up and are out of here. You know, that whole mentality just grieves me because it's, it's running in the opposite direction of the, where God wants us to go as a people. The world tries to do this. I met a traveler from an antique land 
who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that the sculptor well those passions read which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my mighty works. I'm sorry, look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing besides remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. That's the world. The Bible says you are a holy nation, a royal people. Let's turn to it. First Peter. I can't quote it exactly the way it should be. <clears throat> Verse 9 of chapter 2. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Collectively, that's what God wants to do with you and the kingdom of God. And I, that's, that's my message this morning. And I pray that you'll all go back and in your classrooms and in your churches and in your efforts, you will preach the kingdom of God. And not only preach it, but commit yourself to its realization. Shall we bow our heads for a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for the kingdom of God. We thank you that you placed it at our disposal. You've said it's at, it's at hand. Oh God, forgive us for regarding it lightly, for using the word kingdom without understanding. Father, it's another word like the word love that has become meaningless. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to give that word some content by what we teach and by how we live. And I pray, Lord, that every person in this audience will leave this place and go back to find a way to build a beautiful expression of what your heart is and that they will seek first the kingdom of God and they will see their own participation as a means to an end. Help us to this end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more free resources that support teaching and learning, visit the docforlearning.org.